Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Mark Thompson filling in for Jenk today. Excited always to be on this show. I get a chance to talk to so many people who are involved in so many different endeavors, and today is no exception. Do you remember the Dianne Feinstein showdown with those kids who wanted her to essentially sign on to or at least remark on the Green New Deal? Remember that whole back and forth in Feinstein's office? Well, our guest, Isha Clark, was part of that that uh, incident or scene or however you want to call that conversation with Diane Feinstein. But Isha's work goes way beyond that. But I just wanted to sort of uh, hang it on for a moment, something that you might recall. Isha Clark, welcome to the conversation. Hey. You're a legitimate high school student. Isn't that right? Yes, I am. <laughs> in fact, just to put this in context, I was told in setting up our little Skype thing, since you were in school, we we set it up with your grandfather. He was the one who actually set the Skype up today. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> I, well, I love that. I, I mean, I, I love uh, that you are an activist at your young age. Uh, I'm sure you see uh, your youth as a, a virtue, but I'm sure you also see with so much future ahead of you, uh, this climate situation that you have become so very active in talking about uh, as a real threat to your life in other ways moving forward. Definitely. Um, I think it's become so huge that we can no longer ignore it. I mean, it's just crazy to think about that decades, we've known about this crisis for decades, far before I was born and nothing was done about it. And so now we know that we have until 2030 to do something. And that's a little over 10 years, which is just crazy and scary to think about. But there has been a lot of incredible action and powerful people like myself and my peers who are standing up and really taking needed action. And when you talk about the needed action, and then we're seeing some pictures of the Sunrise Movement there, uh, give us a feel for what that needed action is. Sort of what is your, your activist agenda? What do you prioritize and how do you move forward? Because I really feel like this youth movement uh, may show the way for a lot of others who want to join in the same movement. Mm -hmm. I think we've come to a point where we recognize that real change is needs to be on a societal level. We can no longer just recycle or go vegan. Those things are great and major props to everyone who's doing that. But it's come to a point where the action that we need is so radical that it has come down to a cultural shift. And that's in America, but that's also in the world. The climate crisis that we're in is a direct result of our societal culture of greed and white supremacy and economic exploitation. And so we need to really completely change how we live in the world. And that, I think that's the biggest fight for us. I mean, there's no question you're right. I mean, my God, the climate crisis and sort of the unabated, uh, completely, uh, I should say unabated uh, 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 CO2 emissions uh, and, and this sort of uh, skid off the cliff that we're all watching. It's all the result of greed. It's all the result of this, uh, of this system, as you suggest. Uh, but I would ask, again, you're, that's a big ask to change that system, right? So how do you incrementally change that system while still respecting a pretty short timeline? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the Green New Deal is what everyone is talking about right now. And I think 
it's because it's really the only plan that takes seriously exactly what I just said, that we only have a little over 10 years to completely change the everything that we've known, which is very scary and is a very bold task. And at the same time, keeping the integrity of everyone, you know, um, keeping in mind economic justice and racial justice. And so the Green New Deal is a way to encompass all of that. We are creating hundreds and thousands of new green jobs. So people are being able to thrive, it helps our economy. It is giving black and brown people jobs. And at the same time, it gives us that complete shift to a green world. Uh, very well said, of course. and. You know, the Green New Deal is part of uh, a new deal. And the original New Deal, the FDR's New Deal, employed a lot of people and it reinvigorated this nation economically in many ways. And that same economic reinvigoration awaits if they could really get this Green New Deal off the dime. Uh, does, when, when people make fun of AOC and they make fun of the Green New Deal, you must hear and see a lot of that. What are your responses and how do you, you counter sort of that, that negative propaganda coming back at you? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I take my job as a revolutionary very seriously. And I recognize that there's no time to be angry at the negativity. And that at this point, I'm fueling all of the negative energy into changing the world. Because I know that is my one task right now. And that should be the task of everyone. But if not everyone is ready to take on that responsibility, I accept that. And I take that energy and I push it towards changing the world. Wow, that's a great way to be. I, I, I wish I could see, I knew that you'd say certain things that would resonate and I, and I would hope that I could use them maybe as strategies in my own life, that's one of them. How is the science in climate change? I, I know you guys, and I really applaud you for this, talk about the science, because that's important. I mean, the facts are all on your side. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the October 2018 UN report said that we have until 2030 to make radical action towards changing the climate or there will be irreversible um, impacts from climate change. And you know, the science has been around for decades. And in fact, ExxonMobil was part of the movement, or I shouldn't say movement, but they were the people who did a lot of the research about climate change earlier on. And so we've known about this for a very long time and we've let it sit and it hasn't been one of our priorities. And now it's kind of built into this issue that we can no longer ignore. It's so big that no one can ignore it anymore. It's interesting, you grew up in, and are continue to live in Oakland, isn't that right? Northern California. And, Born and raised. And, and I'm wondering how this came to you. What was the thing that really lit a fire under you to be so active in this Sunrise Movement? Yeah, so I'm actually a part of a group, Youth Versus Apocalypse, which is based in Oakland, but now is all over the Bay Area, or we have youth from all over the Bay Area. Um, and we started as a group of young people fighting against a developer, Phil Tagami, who was trying to build a coal terminal through West Oakland. And um, he actually sued the city of Oakland to allow him to build this coal terminal. And so I started off in the fight against that. Um, I actually live in West Oakland, and so 
I recognized how directly impacted I was and a bunch of people that I love and my community members. And just recognizing that there's already super high rates of asthma in that community. And that is a reflection of many black and brown low income communities all over the country who are constantly targets for economic or sorry, excuse me, environmental injustice and you know, there's a community Piedmont in Oakland, which is very white, very wealthy, and that is where Fultagami lives. And we make the comment that there would never be a coal terminal built through Piedmont. It just would never happen. Um, and that communities like West Oakland are constantly targets for these kinds of horrible actions because they can get away with it. That's such a great point. I mean, that you you take a community of the sort that you're talking about, and they're just, people are barely getting by, if they're getting by at all. They certainly don't have the energy and the economic resources to push back legally or otherwise. Right, and a lot of times, you know, the communities who are on the front lines of a lot of issues, but in this conversation, um, environmental injustice, they don't recognize that they're being targeted. And no one lets them know that there's about to be a coal terminal built through their city and that there's town hall hearings where community members can speak up and say that they don't want this. They don't know that they have the power or the resources to be able to fight against these things or to even know about them. Yeah, when you're living check to check and just trying to get by, you're not really watching the message boards for when the next activist meeting is, right? So yeah, there are some unique challenges in that community. You also, and you've alluded to it in our conversation, the fact that you view the indigenous populations as also quite vulnerable. There's a lot going on with the indigenous populations in in terms of trying to stare down big industry. Yes. You know, we saw it with the Dakota Access Pipeline. And, you know, that is something that got a lot of publicity, but there is instances like that that happen over and over and over again in indigenous communities that don't get broadcasted the way that that did. And even in that case where it was broadcasted, there was so much violence and aggression against these people who are the protectors of this land that we stole. And I think it is so important in this movement to save the earth, to have indigenous voices be at the center of everything that we do because they know how to care for the land. This is their land and they've lived on it for far longer than anyone else here. And so, to ignore them is to say that you don't actually want to save the world. Uh, a great way to finish. If we had a, even a percentage of the sustainability consciousness that the indigenous peoples have, uh, it would be a different world and a different place, the United States of America. Again, the movement is youth versus apocalypse. I mentioned Sunrise, that was just that one thing that you happened to be, but, but your movement is Youth Versus Apocalypse, and it's youthversusapocalypse.org for more information. Wow, uh, Isha Clark, you're an inspiration, and I wish you the best. You're right, it should be the most important issue to us, and yet sometimes it's orphaned by the media and others. So again, thanks for joining us, and good luck. Thank you. We'll continue in a moment. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm Mark Thompson here for Jank, 
And sometimes life just works out. A great guest awaits you. We'll get to him in just a second. I actually had a conversation with him on my podcast, which is called The Edge with Mark Thompson. Some of you have been very nice and have uh, clicked in. And I'll, I'll tell you that this guest, that we'll, and we'll get right to the conversation in just a second, I just wanted to say that the reaction to his appearance on my podcast has been overwhelming. I mean, really, lots of emails, a lot of reactions. So, Greg Yatsko, welcome. We are going to talk all about uh, nuclear energy, and your book really states it all, because your book is called Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator. And this man who we are speaking to, Greg Yatsko, is the former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So if ever anyone had a sense of government and its relationship to big energy and this bizarre world of nuclear power, it's Greg Yatsko. Welcome. Well, thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, what don't we know about nuclear power? You know, I think a couple of things we people don't really seem to know. Number one is that all nuclear power plants, especially the kind that we have in the United States, will eventually have accidents. That's probably the really the biggest secret. The industry doesn't like to talk about that. They like to couch the uh, the, the ability of the industry in vague phrases about you, it's unlikely and low probability. But the reality is that accidents, because of the way these plants are designed, are really almost inevitable. But aren't the design techniques being used in these various plants, aren't they in being improved to the point that now we can build them with a, sort of a minimal risk of accident? Well, it, it's a very difficult way. The risk is a very difficult description because you're really talking about things that are certainly unlikely, but when they happen, they're very, very catastrophic. And the way the plants are designed, they're basically designed with a fundamental flaw, which is you know, whenever they shut down, they have all this energy and heat that has to somehow get released. Otherwise, you have a massive uh, accident like we saw at the plants in, in Fukushima in Japan in 2011. And so if all the systems that are there don't work properly, then you will have this kind of over overrun of heat, and that leads you to an accident, it leads to massive releases of radiation. That's just the basic physics of it. And I want to talk about uh, the promise, and I use air quotes with that, of nuclear energy. But because you mentioned Fukushima, I want to quickly touch on that first, and then we'll get to that, again, quote, promise of nuclear energy, clean energy. Again, I, those are air quotes around that. But you were the man in charge when Fukushima was going on. I mean, in charge of our nuclear program, but you very much saw firsthand events unfold in Japan. Yeah, that became a very significant part of the work that I did when I was the chairman of the NRC. And really what I saw firsthand was the consequences of a nuclear power plant action in a major industrialized country. And those consequences were really scared population, almost panic, and evacuation of over 100,000 people from their homes, many of them who haven't gone back to their homes or can't go back to them today. And fundamentally, it's a cleanup, if you can even call it that, that's going to take decades. So you know, this one accident basically wiped out all of the benefits and gains that the nuclear program in Japan had through its entire history with just one accident. And that was a state-of-the-art nuclear reactor. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a react. Well, it was a little bit of an older reactor design, but it's a reactor design that's in operation in many plants here in the United States, and and kind of the fundamental design in a lot of reactors all over the world. So uh, you stated sort of that possibility uh, of this catastrophic event, and you've also stated sort of the inevitability of the catastrophic event, saying it's going to happen is is what you said. Uh, 
Is there anything to offset? Why are so many uh, greenies, you know, uh, members of the Sierra Club, uh, just in general, I mean, saying, well, nuclear power is the only scalable energy source, even though there are risks associated with, we need to power it up worldwide. You know, I've really confronted this, um, really this, this message that's been out there, and it seems like it's gaining steam. And, you know, I can't tell you where it's coming from exactly, but what I can tell you is it's simply not true. Uh, nuclear power cannot scale up fast enough and really within any reasonable cost in a time frame to deal with what has become the most pressing environmental issue, and that is the, the catastrophic effects of climate change. Yeah, so you actually, I, I didn't interrupt, but in your book, you actually go through some of the, the, the numbers and they just don't pencil out. I mean, your, your point is, look, you can scale up green energy way more than you can scale up nuclear energy. Yeah, if I had to, to build, uh, say, a gigawatt of clean energy in the next five years, I could do that with wind, I could do it with solar, I could do it with energy efficiency, I cannot do it with nuclear power. If I push that out to 10 years, I can't do it with nuclear power. So when I was the chairman of the NRC, we licensed a number of nuclear reactors, the first reactors in decades in this country. Of the four reactors we licensed, two of them have been canceled. The other two are continuing to be built, and the price tag is $30 billion. The amount of clean energy from renewable sources, with, even with battery stores that you could get from that same amount of money is multiple times what you would get from these reactors if they're ever finished. That just states it. I mean, that states it right out there. It's, a, it's really an empty promise, the promise of nuclear power. It is. It's an empty, it's an unfulfilled promise, and it's been that way really from the industry's inception. Uh, there's a certain effort, I think, right now to somehow paint this as a new technology, an emerging technology. Nuclear reactors and nuclear power really in its current form have been around for decades. And throughout that entire history, the industry, the technology has failed to live up to the promises. And every time something happens, they, they change the goalposts or they come up with a new technology, a new design idea. And you know that's really where we are right now is people are promising new reactors that will deal with all these problems. But those new reactor designs themselves are decades away from even being attempted for construction. So again, well beyond the time at which they could actually be a practical solution for the challenges of climate change. I mean, Greg Yatsko, you ran the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. One of the things they're talking about now, again, in the conversation about nuclear power and the, again, quote, promise of nuclear power, is these smaller reactors, uh, not the big Fukushima-type plants we're talking about, but smaller reactors that could, in a place like China, with these sort of vast amounts of real estate to cover, could exist in many different villages or uh, across the landscape. Just can you, can you give us a minute about that? What are they talking about? Well, the idea with, with a small modular reactor is you take a nuclear reactor and you break it up into smaller parts. And the, the, the reason for that is that you minimize the effects of an accident. Because if you've got a smaller reactor, you can't get as much radiation released. But at the same time, you also minimize the one virtue of nuclear power from an energy production perspective, which is very dense energy generation. So these smaller reactors are around 50 megawatts. And you know that's kind of a standard size for a small reactor. If I wanted to build 50 megawatts of clean energy, I could do that today very easily with solar power, with wind, with a combination of a small amount of wind. And I can do that and get it up and running in two years, a year and a half from the time maybe I get permits. For the nuclear side of that, they're talking about a decade or so until they can do a demonstration reactor and then perhaps deploy them all over the world. But you know, from a 
from a materials control perspective, from a non-proliferation hazard, we don't really want to be deploying lots and lots of small reactors all over the world. That, that's not really the right solution. It creates so many other problems that simple solutions like renewable energy and wind and geothermal, depending on your applications, are able to solve today. And in fact, they're actually cheaper than any of these small modular reactors could be. So again, it's a, it's a promise that's built around, it's, it's trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. It's really trying to solve the problem of how do you make nuclear better. It's not solving the problem of how do you get clean energy deployed in a, in a fast time frame at the lowest cost. I mean, and the solution to that is, is efficiency and renewables. Your argument is so clean, it makes so much sense. And so when something is happening that doesn't make sense, in this case, that there's still a rap about nuclear energy, I always go to money. So is there a big push on the port of the corporate, uh, uh, if you will, uh, is there a big corporate push on the part of nuclear power? Did you see it when you were ahead of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission? How come, based on what you just said, nuclear isn't even relevant anymore? Yeah, it's, it's, it is a big corporate push because at the end of the day, there's a lot of companies in this country that have nuclear reactors. There's a lot of industries that are built around the promise of nuclear reactors. And we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. And these companies don't want to give up on this technology because they haven't invested uh, a lot of money in it. They haven't invested an entire industry in it. And they're, they're holding on firm to that. I mean, it's much like what we see really with the oil and gas industry, with kind of the resistance to electrification of vehicles, to any kinds of efforts to increase fuel efficiency standards, because you've got this massive industry behind it that doesn't want to give up and, you know, has shareholders and, and investors and pension funds and all these things that that want to preserve those assets. But, you know, for the sake of the planet, we need to think about more than money. We need to think about the future, the future we're leaving for our children. And that means moving away from technologies that cannot meet the climate, the climate risk. And certainly that means moving away from nuclear. When you were there, we have to wrap up, but let me just quickly ask you, because you were there running uh, the commission and, and you are as sort of a uh, uh, unapologetic uh, rogue nuclear regulator. Uh, were there any moments where you thought, wow, this is just amazing what's happening with the with big industry, with the nuclear power industry and my commission, how I, I really am not powerful enough to push back on these on the on this industry? Yeah, I mean, there were certainly moments like that. One of the most significant was when I was dealing with the reforms following the Fukushima accident. And the staff of the agency produced a really fantastic report that had common sense changes. And as soon as that report was out, I was hearing from almost everyone about how it did too much. It was going to be hurtful to the industry. And I thought, you know, this is really the wrong, the wrong reaction. People need to embrace these reforms and do what we can to make these reactors safer. And, you know, that was when I really saw the power of this industry. At that time, people were more worried about finishing the work we were doing to, to license these new reactors than they were trying to make those reactors safe. And I, in fact, opposed those new reactors because they weren't doing enough to really deal with these Fukushima reforms. So, you know, unfortunately, even today, most of those reforms have been ignored and, and, and pushed aside. And I think that's just a tragedy. And uh, unfortunately, it's probably something that will, will hurt us, you know, if we don't move away from nuclear technology soon. The book is Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulatory. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a Rogue Nuclear Regulator. Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator. 
former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Greg Yatsko. What an eloquent spokesperson you are for this entire movement, the green energy movement. And you've really seen firsthand the dangers of nuclear power. And it's just a, a real treat to talk to you. So thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Mark. It was a real pleasure. And, you know, I say it's nice to be talking about something where the right solution for the planet's the right solution for your pocketbook. And, and that's really a nice position to be in. Yeah, the economics pencil out as well. Thanks, Greg. Thanks. Good to talk to you. That's it for it. By the way, there's more with Greg Gatsko uh, on my podcast. As I say, we actually covered some things that we didn't cover on the podcast, but then on the podcast, we covered some things that we didn't cover here. So after hearing them both, you'll have a complete picture. Also, the book is terrific. Uh, another great time here on The Conversation. I look forward to the next time. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>